So today we have Ryan, who is a new friend, um, our one of our um, podcast guests, Paul Green, actually introduced us. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, from the that's why don't we actually start from the place of you know, tell us a little bit about what is it that you do, so people can find some relatedness to know like who they are listening from. Sure. <clears throat> um, so I'm vocationally I'm a body worker mm-hmm. I've been studying and practicing massage and an assortment of different healing modalities for the last 15 almost 16 years now and I'm also an astrologer I've been practicing astrology now since 2006 and studying it for a good uh, seven years before that and um, I as well am a screenwriter and an author of a graphic novel that just came out it's called the Medicine Gate. Thank yeah. you, thank you. That's mm-hmm. been a journey as well, and uh, mm. a lot has been learned in order to create that as well. It has required me to learn a great deal more mm. uh, now that it's completed and more versions are coming through. So, mm. I guess I have my hands in a few different different uh, creative cookie jars, yeah. so to speak. So, why don't we start from the origin story a little bit? Because there's so many directions I wanted to ask you, and I. Promise me that you will remind me to talk about your graphic novel because yeah. I am very intrigued about kind of like from body worker to you know the creative outlet that way. Sure. But let's start start off with the origin story first. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the pivotal moments that you had in your childhood that resulted in your interest in that 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 kind of made you the man that you are, the person that you are, and then the body worker that you are. Sure, sure. I, well, I was born and raised in Lincoln, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And I would say that as childhood experiences go, I was blessed. I had parents who loved me. And while there's no shortage of dysfunction in any family, um, I had an incredible father who was my coach, my Cub Scout master. My, uh, he coached soccer, baseball, football. And was an all-around very strong presence in my life and so too was my mother uh, you know someone who chose to stay at home until we were in school and be an at-home mother and and I had the good fortune of having a strong nuclear family I have an older sister as well and I feel blessed to have had um, an early exposure to women in a way that I, I learned very early I would never fully understand but could absolutely respect mm. that they have their own experience and that there's a um, an appreciation for what women experience different than men relative to hormones and I you know, would later learn about biology and discover oh the emotional reality of men and women is unique mm. to the to the gender mm. without any of it being good or bad or right or wrong and I got to experience love for in this case my sister course as well my mother but um, having an older sister was a big one for me Mm. to to, to learn about women in a way that I I recognized in friends who didn't have that basic family structure Um, I saw the value or the benefit of having an older sister to respect women from a a young age Mm. Um, I can't say that I didn't have my own you know growing pains or learning curves there but uh, another big piece was having a dog. I had a young uh, a dog and to tie it into the, the healing practices that I would later gravitate towards, uh, 
we acquired a dog when I was seven years old, and it was this beautiful animal who was part Datsun, so it had a longer spine and mm -hmm. would often throw it, she would throw her back out. Mm. And I have such strong memories of learning how to love from this animal who was just this bundle of unconditional love but would consistently have a physical imbalance where she would be laid out for days and have a heating pad and I would work with her spine for hours on end mm. and just find a sensitivity and could see her leaning into certain applications of touch or kind of contracting away and I was learning my own kind of relationship to the subtler energies then without knowing it of course until later I would learn about Chinese medicine and an assortment of modalities that would give me a, a system to understand what I was doing as a, as a young child in relationship to an animal or a living thing and its energy patterns and its ability to kind of be sensitive to touch was that was a huge pivotal moment actually was this particular animal that wow. would lead me to suddenly have a, a I guess a, a harnessing of, of an awareness and and therefore applying it to not just humans but even dogs or animals cats in particular like animals know touch and are very sensitive and therefore I could kind of learn sensitivity in relationship to animals that way initially mm. and then it would become human bodies later Wow, that's, that's really beautiful. So you always had this kind kindness towards other beings? I'd like to think so. I don't think I always had it in its entirety. I mean, I think we're all altruistic in nature, uh -huh. but of course we have a series of events in our lives that will create personality and ego structures that will later inform our ability or our comfort level with, with being that open and kind. I would say I haven't always been kind. I'm sure I've done many unkind things. Uh -huh. and I'm, I'm, People may hear this and go, yeah, I remember when you were 12 and you said that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I've learned through heartache and, and tragedy as well from just beautiful, you know, heart-opening moments as well. Yeah. Um, the value in loving kindness and compassion. I would say Buddhism is a, a philosophy slash spiritual path that I've long gravitated towards and mm. studied and practiced in, in those ways. And that's certainly a fundamental tenet of, of Buddhism is the loving kindness and compassion. So when did you, um, let's actually extract that just a little bit. So from that seven-year-old self, hey, you know, I'm helping my dog feeling better mm -hmm. to I'm going to dedicate my life to body work. Like, was there a moment when you decided like, okay, this, this is what I wanted to to do to tangibly heal another human being I'd love to say that it was as clear as that that this was me dropping into a, a space of being in service fully as 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 a um, as a healer mm -hmm. and I think for me uh, the awareness that it was something that I was drawn to do was when I was in college and I was an undeclared major in at University of Nebraska as a sophomore and I remember you know very actively loving to touch people women I dated in particular or just and it did, men or women it didn't really matter as much as just I loved feeling the energy and feeling the relaxation that would result from from an application of touch in a loving way and um, I was going to drop out of college actually in my sophomore year mm. and go to massage therapy school mm. and you know as a kid growing up in Nebraska I wasn't exposed to much if any esoteric 
studies or practices. This is before the internet. Mm. And um, so I, I was quickly told that would not happen from my mother who was paying for my education and therefore I would get my degree. She was not pleased. Not pleased. And, 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 and to her own, you know, to that end or to her credit, it's just not a world that she knows or has any comfort with, so it didn't necessarily exist as a viable mm. means of supporting oneself and, mm. and you know, operatively succeeding in the world. Mm. So it wasn't until 10 years after that initial desire at 19 years old that at 29 years old, in the heart of my Saturn return, which we can talk about the astrology of yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that it became virtually impossible for me not to do it. Mm. And a lot of events kind of came together in very serendipitous ways for me to find my teacher and to go down that path in a very deliberate and very powerful way. And, and to that end, my teacher's name is Fred Midtower, and he has mm. a profound approach to the body and certainly took me through a number of healing protocols within my own treatment as well, my education as well, my apprenticeship as well as applying those teachings. And so, mm. um, well, let's talk about that. Yeah. Let, I mean, let, let's unpack that, right? So 29 from 18, from 19 to 29, 10 years, mm -hmm. something major happened. You met this teacher. Let's, let's talk about that. Like, why was it so definitive to help you clarify all right this is the path I'm on heal myself da, 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 da. so let's talk about that you know I let's see if I can track this in a, in a cool way or a clear way but I was I moved to LA at 25 years old mm. and I was an actor and worked on a show for three years and had an incredible experience of I guess succeeding at least financially as an actor and in doing so solely and then when this gig came to uh, an unexpected halt almost there was a, a woman that I was in relationship with at the time a beautiful yoga teacher who really introduced me to a lot of um, a lot of what would later but you know, has become my practice my life practice as far as my personal practices and I'm sure we'll get to those but meeting uh, Fred Midtower through her and and realizing that my acting career was, in a sense, not quite getting the traction that I was intending. And Fred was a acting teacher? No, Fred is my bodywork teacher. Okay, gotcha. So I met him while I was with her. They oh, were family friends, and oh, basically it's like when you meet your teacher, you know, I guess when the student is ready, right? And the teacher shows up. Right. And, and that was Fred. And that was Fred. And um, so we went to a an event in Northern California where I met Fred, and... As my acting gig is coming to a close, my girlfriend is, was encouraging me strongly not to go back to waiting tables, but to get certified in massage. She says, you have gifted hands, Ryan. You, this, is, this is your next step. And I listened to her, thankfully. Oh, so she recognized. Yeah, she was, she was, I mean, I, that was part of it, was just someone telling me my mm. kind of instinctual leaning was actually a, a, a valid gift that was mm. worthy of, of, of educating and pursuing. and. Mm. So I did so uh, much to my, my benefit, and this was also in the heart of my Saturn return, which this is just when I was starting to really study astrology with greater vigor. And, um, you know, from the first day of training, it was just, there were so many events in my life that led to the moment of, of I'd written a screenplay that my writing partners 
while it was getting fast-tracked into production, my writing partners sued me, killed the project. Oh, no. The gig on the show comes to an abrupt halt, and the relationship where we both really believe we would, were going to get married and do that, that dance, it came to an abrupt halt. All of this in my side in return. I'm, you know, I'm losing my mind wondering what the heck did I do wrong? Mm. And then I read this beautiful book called Astrology for Yourself, which is more of a workbook, mm. as an encouragement from another friend. And upon reading that, I realized for the first time that all these subjective, seemingly tragic events were symbolic or, or systemically happening as a part of a much larger puzzle, which is astrology. And I could see definitively upon studying astrology just how appropriate all these things falling apart really were relative to mm. a more conditioned or enculturated way of perceiving myself and my personality and my ego and my reality from a more objective lens and going, wow, I'm not this way because I'm crazy or because I'm I'm uh, I'm messing up. It's actually, I'm dissolving a lot of structures in order for truth to emerge in ways that I wasn't in any way aware that I wasn't living it. And mm. so, and body work was part and parcel to that discovery and then doing the certification training with Fred and doing every one of his transformational body work uh, courses that he offered. Mm. And, um, and I got to really start unpacking just who I am and mm. all the false ways I perceive myself as well, all the conscious identifications I could form and choose like being a body worker and helping people and being in service and being compensated and having a certain harmony of, of giving and receiving. Oh, and so Fred's class is not just the mechanics of body working. It sounds like there's some like inner game teaching as well. Oh, yeah. He's a Jedi. He's a Jedi. And so it, you know, the body is merely uh, an instrument of expression that energy will naturally find mm -hmm. either excess or deficiency mm -hmm. relative to emotional content that might otherwise need expression can lead to stagnation and so the body is of course uh, a template for all the material that is ours to ultimately integrate or transform in our lifetime and so mm -hmm. the body is a great inroad but it's not the full story it's just merely the kind of the landscape where it's expressing and if I've got a sore throat that's chronic, chances are my voice is in some way not fully self-expressed. Mm. And that could come from the fact that my seventh grade teacher shut me down in the middle of saying something that I formed a belief that what I had to say wasn't valid, which is part of my story. It wasn't seventh grade, it was actually in third grade. But mm. that basic piecing together or connecting of the dots where this chronic imbalance in the body stems from a much earlier and otherwise unknown moment that mm. through the tracking that Fred does or yeah and through that process to get to that point and to then to be with that three or that in this case I guess I was probably about eight years old nine years old and to be with that young boy and to realize wow that <clears throat> led to a squelching of a voice that led to a chronic imbalance within the throat right mm. so that's kind of that's a very I guess easy example mm. but there are many one can draw from how the body's ultimately expressing and what's going on and tracking it that way through a number of systems, including Chinese medicine and Ayurveda and allowing the... So that class was the gateway to all these other... Yeah, yeah. And deeper as a, and deeper studies of the body. And 
definitely. The whole I did. I had no idea what I was getting myself into <laughs> when I took that certification course. This was a means to an end of oh, I like doing this. Apparently, I'm good at it. I'm getting that kind of feedback. And then suddenly I realized there was a lot I didn't know that I didn't know. And there was a lot of trauma in my mm. body that I had never looked at or explored. And through the process of what I would call kind of taming my dragons mm. and with Fred as a, you know, as a, a ready and skilled practitioner to lead that, that charge, that inquiry to really unpack the larger macro puzzle. And he'll go into past life, ancestral coding, to really realize like, wow, I've been doing this my whole life. And lo and behold, my mother's father, that was his basic genetic mm-hmm. disposition. Mm-hmm. And that energy or that miasm carried forth and was stored in my body. And until you know a skilled practitioner could access it, I could find the emotional release that I didn't even know mm-hmm. I needed to have mm-hmm. in order to not be perpetuating that same story. Mm-hmm. So. Um. Where were we? So you share about Fred's class, mm-hmm. and that's the gateway to a lot of different new paradigms. For sure. Right? Chinese medicine. Um, but it also sounds like you had some openings with like astrology as well. So let's actually go down that rabbit hole a little bit. Actually, no, let's not. <laughs> so let's actually focus on the, just the body a little bit. Because how would you say what you learn from this transformational body school complements to the work of say a psychology or psychiatry type of therapy um, in terms of complementary uh, or not I think it certainly is complementary I would definitely concur with that that approach and that perspective the the, the two go very hand in hand I have clients referred to me from therapists who don't have the legal right or freedom to touch their clients, but yet know their clients are holding a lot in their bodies. Mm. And so it's a nice compliment to say, all right, you're working out the fact that you weren't breastfed and and X, Y, and Z is the physical manifestation of that incomplete moment or that traumatic Mm. element of one's childhood, we'll say, then what I can do that, say, a psychologist couldn't do is then apply touch to mm-hmm. the areas of the body that are like, oh, I've got a really tight jaw, I can't speak my voice, I don't trust my instincts. Things like that could come from an organism's natural instinct to, say, breastfeed in this example. Not being satisfied is suddenly there's an instinctual imbalance that gets created, and it's really a muladhara, it's a root root. Uh, Muladhara being the root chakra, it's a Muladhara issue relative to how it can then express in, say, the Vishuddha throat, there's something, a yearning, a leaning that never got satisfied, and so it forms a pattern or a hold that can then manifest like TMJ. Mm -hmm. And so doing jaw release work is very valid relative to, say, that particular Mm -hmm. occurrence or non-occurrence in a child or an infant's life. Um, That's, again, one among, I think, probably many depending on the individual and depending on the actual trauma that's up mm. for you know transformation up for integration and and forming a new pattern because in my mind this is a lot more direct you can get the feedback right away as in you see the muscle release yeah versus let's say if you go to a psychologist not to invalidate the work of a psychologist it's you don't 
you you can't externalize validate oh this knot in my head is now being released yeah i think you know i think talk therapy has its place and its value as you just acknowledged as well and i think that um one can through an intellectual comprehension experience a level of physical relaxation or tension release on the level of oh if i get something but the need to integrate it is substantial in my perspective and mm -hmm. so if I go to my therapist and I have a breakthrough or an aha moment, the need to journal that as a piece, as well take it to my yoga mat, as well meditate on it, I feel to be essential. And so I feel like yoga is more the body as mm -hmm. well the mind, mm -hmm. but also meditation being the mind and, and uh, psychology is also, I believe, a very emotional and intellectual piece but to then tie it to the instinctual center or the the body or the physical mm -hmm. moving center um is a pivotal key that absent that and i think yoga or qigong or any physical meditative movement can achieve this end but mm -hmm. body work is another way to i love when my clients bring their material to the table it's not just a relaxing massage but there's something going on let's go deeper into the story deeper into the awareness that's coming online in relationship to mm. the completion of that story mm. and then forming a new story instead of his story, so mm. to speak, history. Mm. And so um, I believe each piece of, of the transformational puzzle is valid. Mm. I, I find I, I've, referred, I've referred clients out to therapists as well mm -hmm. based on what they're presenting and realizing they need to unpack this more than just in a two-hour session with me. Mm -hmm. And so it's all relative to the individual. Right. And what I glean from yoga, someone else could completely throw their, their bodies off in yoga. So I mm -hmm. find that you know, it depends on the individual before I would say, I would never say blanket statement, everybody needs to do A or B. It's right. very unique to the individual. Yeah, uh, when I was younger, so I'm trained as an engineer. Mm -hmm. So when I was younger, I separated everything. The mind is the mind. Mm -hmm. The body is the body. Nutrition is nutrition, right? Emotions, emotions. Yeah. I actually didn't even touch emotion. Like I didn't have emotions. Got it. Because I'm trained as a scientist, right? Right. Quote unquote stoic. But then more and more, I realized, like, holy shit, everything is actually all integrated. Mm. And this idea of psychosomatic stress, right? How everything you said, you know, something that happens in the mind, the body manifests. Yes. And that's actually how disease happened. Right, if you persisted long enough, right, and then you can work inside out, outside in, just you know, all different kind of approaches for sure. Um, and I love the fact that your work combines not only the body work but also retell a new narrative, new story. Because if you want to change your life, change your story, right? right? If you want right. to change your change the quality of life, you know, uh, change the quality of questions that you ask, change your stories, and all of a sudden new realms of possibilities will open up. For sure. So, beautiful. Let's actually talk about uh, astrology a little bit because I'm fascinated, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> From someone who, uh, I, I was a skeptic. I, I would say I was still, I have a healthy skepticism around the astrology overall. Mm -hmm. um, but I now uh, come to appreciate this is a story, a good framework. Mm -hmm. that people have been using for thousands, I don't know how long, thousands and thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And now it's almost like a scientific right, explanation of you know, how 
we are in the astrological system, etc. So educate me on this. And for the people who are listening who may not be familiar with this, like what is uh, astrology? Is it the Sunday newspaper we read? Oh yeah, you know, this week you're going to meet, meet you know, the love of your life, <laughs> kind of like deterministic point of view, or is it probabilistic? This, you can just share a little bit about the framework of uh, astrology. Sure. I, I like that term probabilistic. Uh, you know, the, the saying as above, so below is directly drawn from an awareness of the planetary bodies, natural, uh, they call it the music of the spheres, mm-hmm. these spherical planets within our solar system orbiting around the sun, each of them creating a very specific and calculable vibration Mm -hmm. and then having angular relationships to other planets that are very geometrically based so to bring the science in for the engineer in the room here the 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 basic discourse of astrology is simply interpreting the planetary angles to one another and the sun and the moon are of course included in that that larger solar system structure of the eight slash nine planets and the um i mean there's i won't get into the what Pluto is as a dwarf planet and all of that. That was a fun little drop in about 10 years ago where they, they demoted Pluto to right, a right. dwarf planet. And as a Scorpio, that was you know, very insulting to it's my ruling planet or one of my ruling planets, Mars being the other co-ruler of Scorpio. But the, the basic story is each of these planetary bodies are coming into different angular relationships to other planets. And those angular relationships we can discern from geometry have a coherency to them that is very harmonic or very dissonant or very frictional or very um, disorienting. And so, for example, if I'm looking at at a natal chart and someone's sun is in a sign that is square to where their moon is in, let's say, a, a sun in Scorpio and a moon in Leo, those are signs that are quote, square, meaning they form a 90-degree angle to one another. Okay. That's very frictional. So if I look at someone's chart with an aspect like a sun squaring the moon, I can discern that on a level of their internal experience, they are working with a little more friction based on the fact that where these planets were the moment they were born informed their entire organism by virtue of a kind of an energetic blueprint, we'll mm-hmm. call it. Uh, there's a great quote, I forget the book that it's from, but it says, you know, at the moment you are born, a celestial chord is struck mm-hmm. that is unlike any other in the universe, and it is yours to ultimately live and play out, and absent your presence, it never gets to happen. You know, that kind of like, to appreciate that we are so unique that way. I love it's, that. So that's a more like an com- uh, analogy with musical note. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I love that. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of, to use the structure of music, which I'm not a musician, and I've studied the structure more from a psychological perspective, and that's Gurdjieffian fourth-way studies, and we can come back to that. But the appreciation for vibration, for the formless coming into form, and the unique moment of taking one's first breath, and where the planets are, and what vibration they're corresponding into being, the moment you take your first breath with Sun in Sagittarius or Sun in Scorpio or wherever it might be, um, that informs what inspires us, what drives us relative to the Sun feeding and fueling us with life, teeming life on this planet. Without the Sun, we don't exist. So the Sun represents symbolically or archetypally that 
inspired aspect of ourselves. And so the sun's relationship to the moon, as I referenced a bit ago, or to Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, all of them are in unique positions, forming unique angular relationships with other planets, which the planets themselves represent archetypes of the human psyche. If I'm going to get up out of bed and do something, you know, like let's say I've got a big day ahead and my to-do list is pretty steep and I've got to just go after it and there's no room for laziness. That's Mars. Mars is the, in, it, it takes that inspiration of the sun and it puts it into action. So the sun is the personal male energy just as the moon is the personal female. So with using yin and yang or light, dark, masculine, feminine, however you want to draw the polarities that we, that we have in our dualistic structure of reality, the sun and the moon are the two most influential planetary bodies relative to this conversation that inform what inspires us, what drives us, how we feel, the habits we form. If something feels good, we want to do it more. If it doesn't, we, we avoid it. The moon kind of informs that. And so the moon's, the sign the moon is in, the house that the moon is in relative to the 12 houses of the zodiac, as well its relationship to the sun and every other planet is relevant to why why we're impelled to do something. Mm. So it's more like back to the probabilistic statement, we're impelled by the planets, we're not compelled. So I might... What's the difference? What's the difference? Impelled versus compelled. Um, Well, if I'm compelled to do something, Mm -hmm. let's say if I'm compelled to eat pancakes in the morning. Sure. I have an experience of, I like pancakes. It's one of my favorite things in the world, so I'm going to eat that because I like it. I'm compelled to do it because I have an already existing awareness of it. I'm impelled to do something that may not have any reason or rhyme to it, but it's what's driving. It's like, wow, I didn't even realize I needed to write that email or post that blog, but something just inspired me. I see. That's, that's how I would make draw a distinction from the terms I on see. the spot. I, see. Um, I imagine if I look them up in the dictionary, I might have a different answer, but that's my off-the-cuff answer and but in in terms of astrology and the probabilistic quality of how the planets influence our individual behavior as well as our collective behavior it's glaringly obvious to me or anyone I think who studies this material and recognizes Mm. the valid influence that the planets have Mm. on my individual drive and desires and and yearnings and also challenges and imbalances as well the collective you know i i would say that our planet it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see how imbalanced our world is geopolitically ecologically Mm. um, economically and to use astrology as a a larger kind of macro lens to appreciate that this is part and parcel to a much larger transformational slash evolutionary process that we happen to be in at this moment in this continuum of time as a species Mm. and this is in large part saturn in capricorn approaching pluto in capricorn it's a really big deal what we're all moving towards Mm. and i think that where astrology for me has been such a, a beautiful study is it's not just a kind of left-brain empirical um, perception of reality, but there's a lot of abstract, more transpersonal elements that influence... What's transpersonal? 
so if, if we have personal sun and moon, mm-hmm. I feel something, you may not know that I'm feeling it, but it's happening internally. Mm-hmm. There's interpersonal, meaning you and I are talking, we're having a conversation, so here I am a Scorpio talking to a Sagittarius, and we have our own unique discourse. Then there's transpersonal, things that I have a relationship to God or spirit or source or whatever we want to call it that's unique, and you might have the same, and it might very well inform a lot of what you feel inspired to say or impelled to say that might differ from my perspective on more etherical or celestial dynamics of our existence where if I was talking to say an atheist it would be a very different conversation than to someone who is a devout Christian Mm. relative to and and by both by the way might have their own resistance to astrology relative to it not necessarily fitting in not being congruent with the model that they prescribe to. Sure. But ultimately, it's not incongruent with any model if one's really honest with oneself. It's another way of perceiving a larger macro story of right. what's influencing human behavior, right. basically. That actually is the, the, the precise point. Uh, you know, mutual friend Megan actually explained this to me, and that to me makes a lot of sense. Because ultimately, if the story that people tell themselves empowers them, whether it be Christianity or, you know, astrology or science or a mixture of all of them, let's say, right? Mm-hmm. Chances are it's going to be a mixture of all of them, right? Because we're all influenced by different stories. Sure, anyway. sure. But if it empowers them to live the best life that they want to live, hell yes. More power to More you. More power, yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. So, so thanks for sharing that. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I guess for the people who are thinking about I think my biggest contention with the idea of astrology was because you know I believe I'm a sovereign person mm-hmm. right all it's all like this w- will right, right? Will. willpower yeah yeah no one tells me what what's what but over the years I learned that well what is the come from of this willpower really am I actually exerting this willpower do I really want to eat that thing because I really wanted to eat it? Or my body decided that I wanted to eat it and then, then I rationalized this decision later on. My okay. cerebral cortex, right? Sure. So there's all that conversation about, well, fatalism, right? It's fate, it's destiny versus it's my will. Mm-hmm. How, does, how do you, I guess, view the... Um, the study of astrology as a way to navigate this. Is it all fatalistic? Is it all deterministic? It's a great question. You actually bring up two quotes that I wanna wanna in in include in what I in my response. Sure. Um, so with respect to fatalistic, there's a great quote from Carl Jung who says, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Mm-hmm. And that had a very big influence for me and I've cut my teeth on Carl Jung's work for a while now, for a while now and you know, depth psychology and had a Jungian psychologist for a, a pretty good amount of time to unpack my own stuff. But back to this story about is it fatalistic, is it deterministic? Um, I do believe we have free will. I believe that if I leave the house and I'm going to go to the gym, but I instead decide to go and get ice cream instead, I have that free will to do so. And nothing was going to, if I wasn't going to, um, let me rephrase that, the 
the inclination to do one thing and then redirecting and doing something else, that's, I think, a perfect example of an expression of free will. Mm. Of, I said I was going to pick you up at 7, but I'm going to send you a text and tell you I'm not coming until 8, and that's me exercising my free will of I'll do this when I want to do this and, or when it's right for me or whatever. And um, for me, what lives in the unconscious, which is represented by the moon in our astrology and the mm. unskillful expression of the sign that the moon is in, is of greater value than imposing my will on someone. So in other words, I want to know what in me is inspired to not pick you up at seven when I, I said see. I would. I actually, what is it in, in me that's in resistance to either honoring my word or doing what I know is in my best interest as far as going to the gym instead of going to get ice cream? And ooh, I would rather do the inquiry necessary to know I want to go to get ice cream because I want something that feels comfortable versus doing something I know will be of great value to me and ooh, there's, there's my ego and rather than abide by doing what it wants me to do, I will want what it does not want. If it does not want me to go to the gym, I'm going to the gym to override that. Now that's personal work, that's self-remembering in a sense in a moment of there's choice A that I was going to do and then suddenly choice B presented itself. And this is far more attractive in the kind of short-term gain, but the long-term defect cost, or imbalance. Yeah. yeah, the kind of cost-benefit analysis right. of choices that we make. And um, so I do believe that free will exists and it's mm -hmm. something that we can employ. I think that free will combined with universal will is the real aim in the mm -hmm. whole situation where is it of better value to the world in a more altruistic sense of the word for me to go get ice cream or for me to go to the gym if, or, or, or yoga or exercise or something that, that I think inherently has more value mm. to me being the highest me that I can be mm. relative to satisfying a craving or, 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 or more directly an egoic distraction from what I recognize. Right. So the example may not be as, as clear as I would prefer, but the basic gist of, of deterministic um, ultimately I'm going to find my way to the gym and maybe I went and got ice cream that day and I end up having a sugar crash and a nap instead of writing the 20 pages I otherwise would have written if I had followed the course but I also believe that I'll learn from that experience mm. and rather than judge or beat myself up I know when that craving's up again you know rather than become addicted to satisfying my impulses or desires being more disciplined, more deliberate about this is, I know this is what benefits the larger macro puzzle of my dharma, what I incarnated to ultimately fulfill in this life. Mm -hmm. So I think that one common problem with um, a, a more non-dual approach, which is something that I personally uh, ascribe non to. Non-dual is relating to all things from one center where there's light and dark and neither one is good or bad neither one is right or wrong they both have to exist for life to exist so mm -hmm. for this three-dimensional reality duality is is the fundamental core for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction mm -hmm. in a non-dual sense of the word can i be so at one with the outcome of releasing my book and nobody buys it nobody reads it to releasing my book and becoming a new york times bestseller my work is to be in the center where either is perfectly rele relevant and valid and mm -hmm. um, all the stories I might want to attach to either outcome mm -hmm. are mine to be in right relation with mm -hmm. and 
back to another quote. This actually ties in really nicely to the other quote I was inspired to to share is Ramana Maharshi, mm-hmm. uh, Indian saint regarded as one of the most enlightened beings of the 20th century and quite a brilliant being, and there's a lot of work. You can find him online. Uh, he, when he spoke, which was not very frequently, he observed silence a great deal in his life, but when he did, it was just this profound nuggets of wisdom. And in this quote, I'm going to use a word called Prabhda Karma. And Prabhda Karma in Sanskrit is like given karma. Given circumstances, you came out to play whether you like it or not. You know, you came in with the father and the mother that you did. And whatever story unfolded and is still emerging and unfolding in this life is Prabhda Karma. It was your given karma. They mm-hmm. were going to be your mother whether you, you know, whether you like it or not, right? Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> some may say you've chosen them as your parents. Right, yeah. right. You know, and we can get into different right. systems of perspective sure, to, sure. To, to orient that. And as far as this quote, to, to bring it through, so Ramana Maharshi said, the ordainer controls the fate of souls in accordance with their prabhda karma. Wait, back up one more time. You lost me. <laughs> no worries. So the ordainer or God or what do you want to call it? So the ordainer controls the fate of souls in accordance with their Prabhda karma, their given karma. Mm. Whatever is destined not to happen will not happen. Try mm. as you may. Mm, mm. Whatever is destined to happen will happen. Do what you may to prevent it. Mm. This is certain. Mm. The best course, therefore, is to remain silent. Mm. For me, that quote, comes to mind in moments when I'm really grappling with do I choice A or choice B? Mm. Do I say this or do I not? And because I have Gemini rising, that's a in my astrology, that's a common reality that I face is I can do A or I can do B. There's two. And I have to choose and I want to choose consciously. Mm. And I want to trust my instincts so that when I do choose A, I'm not looking over my shoulder wondering what B could have been. Right. You know? Because you're going to go this way. Right. Because then all of a sudden now I'm steering into the rocks. And um, so, with that, I believe that to be a true statement in my experience. Um, you know, I just brought up a moment ago a Carl Jung quote about fate. It's the unconscious, you know, mm. directing our lives, so to speak. Or, or I should say, if I go get ice cream every day for a year mm. and suddenly I develop a. Diabetes too. Right. Easy, easy one, two. Mm. Um, I could just say that was my fate, you know, and I can try and silver line it. But in truth, my unconscious consistently was directing my choices and it had consequences that if I really want to call it fate, I'm actually shortchanging the opportunity for real, genuine, self-realized growth and go, wait a second, I actually created an environment for this to happen Mm. and that was based on choices I made Mm. against my better judgment or against a more conscious awareness that there is a healthy or less healthy way of doing something or satisfying cravings in that kind of tied in example. So with astrology relative to the Ramana Maharshi quote, the the planets impel us, but they don't determine our fate. They don't, they don't immediately say, um, you're going to do this no matter what on Tuesday, November 2nd, where horoscope, back to your original question, I find value in all of it, so I'm not going to shortchange what horoscopes do. I will say that it 
at best is an incomplete picture mm. or a soundbite frequency that has some degree of relevance where, for example, if I'm writing a horoscope, which I don't do, but if I were writing a horoscope for Sagittarius right now, the fact that the Sun and Jupiter and Mercury are exactly conjunct at four degrees of Sagittarius right now points to a very expansive, very... wise space that Sages are occupying right now. There's, there's unique insights that are coming because Mercury is also retrograde, so we're, we're seeing things from an entirely different lens right now if we pause and don't let our already existing kind of projection of what's happening or onto the... I have a story about my girlfriend is doing this and I could project I'm not worthy as a result if mm. I'm letting my own stories come into the conversation and instead appreciating that the opportunity to see things from a new lens is very strong with the Sun Jupiter Mercury conjunction I was speaking about Sagittarians in general but that's influencing everybody but if I'm writing a horoscope for Sagittarius I'm going to say you're seeing things in a new way it's a great time to to examine your beliefs examine mm. your ideas about reality and your story mm. and a wonderful time to recognize that you're part of the co-creative process mm. what is the vision you're living into what is your conscious intention and if you aren't clear on that now is a great time to meditate on that mm. to sit with what this upcoming new moon in Sagittarius is about for you now is the time to review and take stock in a, B, and C feel like relevant and positive and um, advantageous perspectives, but X, Y, and Z are old stories, mm. foolish ways of holding myself or judging myself in in, in less than um, you know in less than than positive or loving ways. Mm. And so, as we're going into a waning moon cycle, for example. Uh, or we're in a waning moon cycle, the new moon's on the 6th of December of, of this, this month and this year, um, it's a great time for letting the kind of slower, heavier energy of, at least in the northern hemisphere, the winter month, months of winter, and, and the, the quality of the lunar cycle coming to an end to be, ah, it's less about going out and building and doing and more about going in and exploring and ultimately getting clear and excavating all the old material mm. that... that in our most conscious state, we can we can recognize there's no there's no cheese down that hole. There's no benefit in holding that story in right. place or that identification. So that was a lot of different information. I don't know if I answered the question. And I well, overall, to me, you answer the question multiple angles. But what I got what I gather from all of this is use astrology as a way to raise your consciousness awareness. Yeah. Right to to the to the to the unaware, right to the to the deeper level uh, level of uh, unawareness. Is that accurate? <clears throat> Absolutely. I mean, it's it for me. Astrology came online at a at a moment when my subjective reality was, for all intents and purposes, pretty horrific. Pretty like everything was collapsing around me, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and subjectively, that was. A real story. That was not fun. Yeah, that actually happened, and, yeah, and I yeah. could I could track the details, and, and nobody's going to argue that was a hard time. Yeah. What astrology did for me, upon reading the book Astrology for Yourself, was 
I suddenly realized that there's a whole macro story going on mm -hmm. and objectively speaking, I was right where I needed to be mm -hmm. and going through exactly what I needed to go through to really access my true nature as you know a Scorpio in this case. So, so I have a question there. So one of the things that I don't like personally is I want to go this direction, but now astrology or whatever, you know, external stories to say, hey, don't go down this road because you might, you know, have hazards, accidents, mm -hmm. go down this road instead. Mm -hmm. So now I'm doubting myself, right? Right. I don't like that. Right. So then, but also, so in, in other words, informing me of new awareness, bringing me something that I wasn't aware of before. I'm all about that. Right. But if it now becomes a limitation, don't do this and don't do that. And now my the world that I live in becomes smaller and smaller. Right. And then now I'm adhering to this. Now I'm like very skittish of every, <laughs> everything. And then that's the part I don't like personally. So how would you advise me on making sure that this is a informative mechanism rather than a... Uh, do this, don't do that. Right. Stoppage. Right barrier well, to living a free life because ultimately for me the highest value that i have is the sovereign inner sovereignty and external sovereignty mm -hmm. freedom mm -hmm. sagittarius yeah sagittarius right, right, exactly, totally exactly. all the way the highest value yes so when things that basically tells me you can't then my natural reaction is oh you really really F let me you. show you yeah exactly <laughs> let me show you what i can and can't do right i'll well, go the opposite way right Here's what I'll, I'll, I'll address one piece, which is sure. I don't actually believe astrology says do or don't do anything okay. ever. I feel like, for example, let's say you're presented with a contract you need to sign, but Mercury's retrograde and everybody says don't sign contracts in Mercury retrograde. Um, the advice I would give a client in a situation like that is if you're able to wait until after Mercury retrograde, then wait. And if you're not able to, this isn't the end of the story. This isn't the end of the road. This doesn't mean that it's going to go bad, though we can easily infer mm -hmm. and project onto this oh, fear. And then, you know, now I'm feeling skittish about signing a contract because I'm not supposed to. For me, it's instead of reading the contract three times, read it six times. Instead of holding a position on something that you feel is absolutely necessary, Consider it from every angle before you hold that perspective to be the truth. Mm. Um, and so in other words, like I was making reference to Mercury being retrograde. Currently, the, the value in seeing things from a different lens of perspective is very rich. And so to be in negotiations and conversation about things in a Mercury retrograde, I find to be very advantageous because you're seeing it in a way you wouldn't see it with Mercury, which rules our cognition and our communication, how we receive information, cognize it, and then communicate and interpret. We have a unique perspective right now. Mm. And the disadvantage is if I sign a contract, I may not have considered everything the way I would have if Mercury wasn't retrograde. And now that it's gone direct, I'm like, oh God, I signed on for two years and really one year was the obvious choice. What was I thinking? Mm. And then we have to come back and possibly renegotiate. So for me, it's about this is happening. And if you're going to sign that contract because there's a deadline. Awareness. So be it. Bring awareness. Six times. Re yeah, exactly. Yeah. Get four opinions instead of two. Really make sure that you've got attention brought to the details because 
there are things that we can miss more readily during a Mercury retrograde. Mm. So that's, it's just reframe, or if you're gonna travel and the sun is conflicting Jupiter, then I would say double check your itinerary, make mm. sure your reservations are bound or are, 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 are confirmed and, and things you might not normally do, but then you get to the airport and they don't have your reservation and you know, then you're hitting that, ah, the astrologer said the sun was squaring Jupiter, therefore that meant you know, bad things would happen. No, it just means that you've got to be extra attentive and extra I aware. I like that. No, that, that's that's uh, operational. Right? Yeah. Operational, yeah. lizable versus do or don't do kind of a thing. So totally. I appreciate that. Thank you sure. for the, the reframe. Um, so segue to, I want this podcast to not only just be inspired by people's narrative, but let's actually get tactical, right? So say people are inspired by who you are, what you say, your point of view in the world. Let's get a little tactical about how do you stay grounded on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year. Share with us some of the disciplines that you have, the way you run your life physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, Mm -hmm. per se, professionally, all of it. With my life becoming busier and busier as it has this year, and with the release of a book and a few different things that are happening, the the obviousness of meditation's value and benefit for me, and I, I don't think anyone would argue with this, is it's the best 20 minutes to an hour I could spend in my day, if I'm truly honest with myself. I prefer to, to, to get up and meditate first thing in the morning and having done Vipassana meditation twice, which is a a 10-day silent meditation that was the practice of Gautama Buddha and what he developed and ultimately taught to his his final days in his body, the benefit of going in and really being with the noise until the noise no longer, until it subsides, basically, which I found in both the Vipassanas that I did, the the noise was profound and the discomfort was substantial and the duration of time was essential if i had only had 6 days or 7 days it would have it, it wouldn't have fulfilled on its 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 aim which is you know really really being present essentially mm-hmm. and um, so meditation is the, is a short answer and uh, that particular style of meditation is what i've prescribed to I have a few different Buddhist sadhanas I've received through empowerments from, from various Rinpoches and His Holiness the Dalai Lama I received an empowerment from as well. Those practices are also pivotal for me. Actually, give. I don't want that. Well, I don't know what that is. What's an empowerment? That? Yeah, what's that? So, in the case of Buddhist empowerments, you can receive an empowerment on a certain deity. Mm. And in Buddhism, like Hinduism, is a polytheistic Mm. orientation. There are many gods representing many aspects of, 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 of experience, like the god of wisdom is Manjushri, mm. or um, you know, Chinrezira of the Kiteshvara, uh, it's synonymous names, is the, the god of compassion. So we are all of us compassionate, we are all of us wise, relative to empowerment I felt drawn to receive to better enhance and and substantiate my experience of that energy in this case red chin is a as a empowerment i received from 
uh, a man named Garchin Rinpoche. And the way that an empowerment works is once you've done this two or three day process of empowerment, you're rec you receive a practice, a sadhana, that you commit to doing depending on the empowerment. It's, it varies in terms of the commitment. And the way it essentially works is I will perceive Garchin Rinpoche as my guru relative to him as an embodiment of Red Chinrezi. And so suddenly he goes from guru to deity. And then I go from identification of that basic relationship into now I am Garchin Rinpoche. I am Ch Red Chinrezi in this case. <clears throat> to like a spiritual role model. Yeah, kind of like it represents something very symbolic and mm. very specific, each mm. deity does. And mm. then from that, recognizing myself as that mm. and recognizing my, my um, orientation to every moment. Let's say someone's coming at me with, you know, with a closed fist ready to, to, to do some damage. From an ego standpoint or from my sympathetic nervous system, I might be very... You know, you're coming to me with yang. I'll meet you with yang, mm. right? Which is not a martial art at all, but it, or or in that way, not compassionate at all. Mm. And so, remaining in that space of awareness relative to that situation, I don't have to make you wrong or fight you, but rather, what is the fastest way to? Well, first of all, what? How can I remain in that center, mm. such that your yang becomes yin all on its own, and I don't actually have to be involved in your story, even though you're projecting me as this thing you need to attack. I see. And so that, of course, is a more specific physical endangerment. But even energetically, if someone's angry and they happen to cross paths with me in the street or it's someone that I love and care for is having a moment and suddenly I'm the canvas upon which that's being projected, if I'm not mindful and I get into my ego and I get defensive and suddenly now it's this, mm -hmm. you know, two-hour process of figuring, you know, just who's right, who's wrong, and that to me feels like a waste of time mm -hmm. relative to, oh, you're having an experience, how do I remain objectively aware in the midst mm -hmm. of our subjective exchange mm -hmm. such that I don't lose myself in this moment of expression, this moment of emoting or energy and lose motion. Lose your centeredness, yeah. lose your sovereignty. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a good way to put it. And so to remain sovereign in that awareness of that particular bandwidth or mm -hmm. frequency to maintain a connection with that so that we all have the same aim. We all want peace. We all want harmony. And if I'm not mindful and I don't do these practices regularly, I'm far more prone to, mm. to buying into the story and becoming... To react. Yeah, to react. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the original question, like my practices, Buddhist uh, empowerments have been a part of my journey and therefore the sadhanas that, I, that correspond with those are part of my practices. Mm. And... Um, I personally find being in my body to be essential. So I found mm -hmm. yoga and I found specific ways of exercising. Any specific yoga, by the way? Uh, I, have a, I have a pretty varied array of teachers that I've worked quite diligent with, diligently with over the years. Mm -hmm. And I found them to be like uh, Shiva Ray is someone that I studied with. This is 15 years ago. Um, regularly and then Saul David Ray is someone that I worked a lot with and I, I find great value in his presence and his teachings and um, currently and I think Rod Stryker is someone bringing a lot of incredible yoga into the world as well and I've done workshops here and there I can't claim that I would call Rod Stryker my teacher but I do appreciate his work in the mm -hmm. world mm -hmm. um, and in general 
I mean, a vinyasa practice, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty, uh, I have a lot of energy, a lot of prana moves through my body. I tend mm -hmm. to do, I tend to be moving a lot. Prana and means chi? Prana, yeah, it's a Sanskrit word for energy, essentially mm -hmm. chi being the Chinese mm -hmm. same, chi and prana are the same basic mm -hmm. thing in, in mm -hmm. conversation. And um, so I found for me, I'll do a yang practice probably more regularly than a yin, though I think both are essential relative to what is my current moment. If I wake up super exhausted from having worked and is it the smartest thing for me to keep pushing? Probably not, mm -hmm. but softening. If I'm carrying tension, there are varying ways to approach that and knowing one's body and knowing one's <clears throat> kind of the energy of the moment where my current practice, I'll be, I study regu regularly with a man named Steve Jones mm. and uh, I find his yoga to be exceptional. Mm. Currently he plays no music and it's just very alignment-based, breath-based yoga that for me is consistent with my natural state of, of, of peace. Mm. And so while I don't in any way think music and yoga is a bad thing, I appreciate it. When I do my own practice, I'll often listen to to specific music to kind of keep a rhythmic flow for myself. Mm. Mm. Um, but I also find that doing one's own practice after one learns the body, and I've done yoga teacher trainings in order primarily just to know the ins and outs of what a good practice is oh, and I see. why we do what we oh, do. So I do like my own practice as well, but I mm. find in this moment at least Steve Jones has been someone I regularly mm. appreciate and I'll I think a good sign of, or I should say, a sign of a good yoga class for me is lying on my mat and shavasana, and I don't fall asleep, but I don't really maintain a physical awareness of anything other than just that state of presence. That's, to me, the end-all goal mm. of, 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 a, of an asana practice, and I find I get that in his class quite regularly, and so, mm. and when I if I take someone else's class and that's not happening, I don't tend to want to return because it's not quite taking me where I could probably get to myself mm. or I know I can get to in his class as an example. Mm. So meditation, yoga, anything else? Nutrition. Nutrition's key. Mm. Uh, what we put in our bodies is, I think, the strongest awareness we can bring to our day-to-day -day as far as... Um, I mean, mindfulness in what we eat, even prayer, praying over our food, and presencing ourselves to the, the life force, the Shakti, which is another Sanskrit word, which is more about the, the, that spark of life force where energy itself is prana in terms of distinguishing those terms. Um, if I'm eating something rich in nutrients and superfoods versus a more dense meal, it's pretty obvious to me, based on you know cultivating an awareness of my body, that it's like shooting myself in the foot if I eat, like for example, I use pancakes as an example. I love pancakes, I really mm. do. And I figured out a way to make superfood pancakes. Mm. And I, it has very little sugar, it has high nutrients, high, I, spirulina is one of the main superfoods in it, and spirulina and cacao go very well together in smoothies and or in this case, pancakes, and um, as a taste profile, and with one, if there's an energizing and sustaining mm. relationship, and then with a lot of ghee and coconut oil, there's also that fat that mm -hmm. allows the body to burn it 
throughout the day. And so, for mm -hmm. example, Burning Man you brought up earlier, my go-to in the morning is a superfood pancake and I'm getting all the proteins, antioxidants, and essential nutrients I need to sustain a very high level of energy without exhaustion, without depletion, mm. with relatively a very tasty meal. And mm. so there's a way to kind of find that, that balance of um, making sure you get the nutrients you need. Most people are nutrient deficient, don't necessarily have a lot of education in what the body needs, but then also knowing one's own personal constitution, whether you're using Ayurveda as a model and if you have a strong vata, to eat grounding foods is very important, mm. right? Whereas if you're a strong pitta, eating cooling foods to help bring balance and harmony. And so knowing mm. aspects of yourself from these different systems of awareness of the body is huge. So nutrition, water, uh, I think the, I, I would posit, and I have no basis for this estimation, but I would posit that about 75% of the planet's dehydrated mm. and when you're dehydrated your brain's not functioning as highly as it can mm. and also other imbalances result and then we crave things like sugar mm. when really we need water and so I would invite anyone who might otherwise have a sweet tooth or a, a yearning to one <laughs> then the, for me as I understand it and I'm not a nutritionist I'm not even credentialed to speak about it in a way that would advise anyone but my own personal learning has been the the craving for sugar will more often than not be satisfied by drinking water even though it might not taste good but see an acidic body wants further acidity mm -hmm. and so if I'm really in a sweet tooth craving chances are I want to become even more acidic and for me as a with a pitta constitution pitta vata I have to curb that craving and if I just drink water the craving goes away and I'm actually optimizing what other sources of fuel live mm. in my body mm. that then is suddenly metabolizing what's there as opposed to adding more sugar on top of an already probably a, perhaps candida rich but certainly acidic environment and mm. another great thing with that speaking um, of which yeah right me too another another um, way to approach nutrition I found valuable and this isn't for everybody but um, apple cider vinegar is a wonderful addition to a body to help regulate the pH balance boost the immune system and do a number of, there are like probably two dozen benefits of apple cider vinegar. Um, it's not for everyone, it doesn't taste good, but uh, it does for me, my digestive tract is far stronger and cleaner when that's a regular practice. How do you know that? How do you know it's making a difference? You say stronger and cleaner, how do you know that? Kind of like with meditation, if I don't do it, I feel it. I see. And so if I'm in any way feeling irregular in my bowel movements or if I'm just feeling sluggish, uh, I think that's a tremendous mm. additive to help bring balance in that area of digestion. And um, mm. I think another one... Astrology for me, like as far as my daily practice, back to the original question as to my daily, like how do I ground it and root it? Knowing where the moon is for me is a tremendous gift to, oh, the moon's in Leo today as it is. Mm -hmm. Then I can appreciate, ah, oh, there's a little bit, I want to express love more. I want to feel creative and expressively, or creatively expressive in my life. That could be writing as it is for me often, or it could be calling someone I care about to just feel the love, share the love, spread the love, mm. and, and um, 
and also allow my emotions perhaps a little more attention. Like, oh, what am I feeling today? Mm. Well, if, and then what can I do to augment that sensation if it's one that I appreciate or find right relation with or balance with if it's maybe a lower, denser energy? And of course, there are so many things that inform our emotional state. It's not just necessarily our life circumstance, it's also the biochemistry of our of body. Course, yeah. And um, everything's fractal. Yeah, yeah, very much from so. From the body, from relationships to astrological. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. I appreciate it. I'm sure there's more. We can totally geek out on that. Yeah, well, and I'll say one more thing too. For anybody who lifts weights, as I, I'm from Nebraska, where I grew up, I actually was literally, there's a photograph of me in the hospital bed. Yeah. Day one, uh-huh. there is a football. <laughs> and my arm is resting on this football. Like, this was just my destiny, right? right, right. And my father was, was uh, a college football player and was, um, had he not broken his wrist a week before training camp, would have tried out for the New York Jets. Mm. But um, that being said, so I had that in my blood or certainly in my, in my, my day-to-day. And right. So weights was a part of my life as well. And many could argue about where the ego lives, the contraction of muscle. And I find that weights coupled with yoga is pivotal because you're strengthening bone and you're also mm. then loosening the muscles and the sinews of the muscles that get tight mm. from, let's say, a heavy workout or that CrossFit example you use. You know, the body the next day, you're going to feel that lactic acid build up and the polyuric mm. acid in the muscles. And that forms adhesions, which forms that sensitivity to touch. Mm. So we want to break those adhesions up, just as an aside. But also, yoga is a great way to also bring space in the muscles, oxygen to the muscles in a way that expands. And so the two coupled are so complementary in my experience, and I think that'd be true of anyone who's drawn to those kinds of practices. But back to the, the weight thing that I like to share with people is if you look at five element acupuncture, the lungs and large intestines are, they correspond with the metal element. Mm. And weights are iron bars, right? Or whatever their metal constitution are. To touch metal and appreciate that we all have grief and we all have stuckness on some level in our body. Mm. To touch that and to actually engage with weights, not from a place of I'm lifting my bicep and I'm getting bigger or stronger, but actually I'm processing energy through my system in a way that if I bring awareness to it, I'm actually moving the chi. I'll leave the gym more often than not when I maintain that mindfulness in a way that I feel like I just came out of yoga, out of that, that pure shavasana where I just wow I just feel so open and so spacious wait wait back up one sentence what did you do so you touched the bar and then what do you say to yourself I remember well I'll do two things I'll bring in another um, corresponding system through Ayurveda we have what are called bandhas Mm. there's the mula bandha at the root jalandhara bandha is about four inches below the navel and then I'm sorry udhyana bandha so mula bandha's root Udhyana Bandha is basically the pelvic center or where the lower dantian mm. from that model. And then Jalandhara Bandha is at the throat. And I'll engage my bandhas. So I'm not trying to lift my deltoids with a shoulder press. I'm actually engaging my bandhas and lifting from core. This happens to be the corresponding movement. But it's uh, originating from the center. And I've had, knock on wood, zero injury in the last seven years of doing this. Like I might tweak my low back in my younger years or something like that. None of it. And that's from that, boom, bond is engaged, touching this. There's an emotional component because it's physical, emotional, intellectual in my experience. And so I'm using that intellectual awareness of the system or structure of the body from that lens and then touching metal. 
and processing grief and stuckness, whether it's mine, whether I'm empathically uh, aware of it in the field of the other people in the gym or people in my life that are in it, having their own moments or clients for that matter. And I'll just go into the energetic field of stuckness, grief, in a way that I'm relating with it consciously in such a way that I'll leave the gym and what was stuck, what I thought I needed a massage to get after, or what I thought I'm gonna have to really like figure out what this is, it's just gone. The energy just disperses. So let me recap. So in your mind's eye, you're holding this bar, you're activating the different chakras, whatever, you know, the different bandhas. The bandhas, right. right. The bandhas. And then also emotionally, you're thinking, all right, release this grief or anxiety or whatever. So that way you are not only activating a physical, um, your energetic as well as your emotional. Is that what you said? Yeah, I wouldn't, and I, I don't, I don't go into a release space with it, um, but I do go into a presencing, like presence myself with stuckness. I don't track my body and say, okay, I feel stuckness here and there. I just know that in my system, there is stagnant chi, and if I relate to this, and the metal being lungs, large intestine, lungs emotionally represent grief stuckness large intestine so those two basic organ functions from chinese medical perspective they govern that emotion mm. so for example liver anger um this is a bit of a tangent but relevant the the experience if i'm angry then i have stagnant liver chi mm. like there's just there's no there's no dissociating those two things and so what can I do, like acupuncture is the best way that I know to, or tuning forks for that matter, to disperse stagnant chi in the, the liver. However, another way that I go about it is I feel that anger is actually a component of grief. Grief is an all-encompassing, not all-encompassing, but is, is, it is an encompassing kind of umbrella of a number of different emotions. Mm. Uh, it's been broken down to be five. I've read where it's 12, and I don't know the actual answer. This There's a lot. But yeah, and yeah. so from the traditional model that I initially learned, it, it goes from denial to anger to sadness to grief to acceptance. Okay. Or sadness, sorry, sadness to depression to acceptance. Got it. So grief is the arching of those five experiences, or those five energetic emotional experiences, and emotion is just energy in motion. It's just, if I have an emotional thing, energy's moving. So if I'm already moving energy deliberately mm. with the ancillary benefit of a more attuned physical vehicle. But the truth is it's moving chi in a very powerful way. It doesn't have to be weights, it can be anything, but I do find for me personally when I'm touching metal, I take that mindfulness to it. And I'll kid you not, I could have a kink in my neck that I think like, ooh, this is not good. I'm gonna have to figure out, I gotta call this guy or this girl, this woman to figure out how I can kind of help. Mm -hmm. I can just center bandhas, engage from that place, and move very mindfully, deliberately, as best I can be present. And in so doing, wow, that kink that I thought was gonna take all kinds of things is maybe 10% of what it was, if even that. Mm. And so back to the anger example, I don't think any one emotion, I should say, I think all emotions are accessible through exercise, right. whether it's the endorphins that we release to experience a sense of elevated energy and high, mm. that get endorphin high. Um, it could be running as well, but I feel like for me personally, and I like, to, I like to offer it to any of my clients that do physically work out with weights to you, correspond so with it that other way. Do you, in your mind's eye, seeing yourself moving the energy 
through your body that way? Like you're cycling through it or you're moving In the it? macro sense, yeah. Like I'm not tracking it through any given meridian channel or anything like right. that, like that specific, but I am very much presencing breath and the breath is the key to all of it. I mean, it's, it's really the breath is initiation of all movement if we're, if we're super mindful. And that's, of course, how we avoid injury as well is if I'm moving in accordance with a centered awareness, mm-hmm. um, we can talk about Aikido actually is another art form that I find to be very effective in maintaining an awareness of being centeredly extended with our key. Mm-hmm. Key is a Japanese word for chi. And so much the same, I'm just using the, to answer your question, the experience of moving energy. It's, almost, it's, it's, it's in its entirety. It's not like, so in other words, if I'm doing bicep curls or right. something like that, right. it is so much more than building a stronger bicep or breaking right. down the muscle so that it can build up stronger. It's more about moving chi very deliberately at a very core level. And that's the Do result. You from here to your biceps and then down that way? Is there I don't a even track it that way. No, it's, I appreciate you asking because it's a valid question. It's more like, for example, it doesn't even matter what your what body part you're focusing on in terms okay. of the exercise. It's all about if I'm in my core and I'm moving from core, I could be doing bicep curls, I could be doing shoulder press, I could be doing bench press, whatever, but I'm just, the, the, this, our, our strength moves, this is a lot of Qigong practice as well, which I could add to the, the mix of practices. Um, not what I've been doing lately, but has been a very solid piece of, the, of, the, of my journey. And, mm. But with respect to the moving in Qigong or Tai Chi is a nice derivative movement as well. You're kind of in the center of the movement as opposed to now I'm moving my arm more like it's more like the Chi is moving my arm. I should say that it's moving through me in a way that I'm, I have a, a choreographed movement mm. based on the, the particular either the stage of your Tai Chi practice or, this, or the movement you're doing in Qigong where if I'm doing like this uh, in Qigong, you can't see it in the podcast, but I'm, I'm oh, taking... Oh, we are recording. Oh, we are recording. Great. Yeah, yeah. So, like, there's a movement where you scrape the chi across your chest. You're opening the lung channel. This also gets across the kidneys. And the lung goes down out through the thumb. And so you're literally opening. So if you're feeling unwell, breathing in like that with a very strong hand and a very strong tiger claw-like hand. And then exhaling and coming back in and coming back to center and back to rest and inhaling and doing it that way. What one is doing is actually literally directing chi through specific parts of their body. So that's more specific to what you're talking about. Like there's Qigong movements right, right. that are very deliberate about opening meridian channels mm. through various movements. And at the gym, I just feel it's more like I'm in my, I'm in my bandhas, my bandhas are engaged, therefore I am sturdy and I'm not like straining or I'm not I off see. balance. I see. So it feels like You're energy just moves. Here. Yeah. I got you. So yeah. it's not a visualization thing. No, but, it isn't for me anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I wanted <laughs> to get more detail there because for me, I want to be more energetically sensitive because mm-hmm. I feel like I'm kind of a energy savant. Like I don't, you, you would need a lot of, let's say, hape as an example to move the energy. Okay, me, right? I got you. Versus someone uh, who is really sensitive, like just a little bit of anything, then they feel the difference. Mm-hmm. So for me, I wanted to be more intentional about developing that. So it sounds to me, not only the awareness, but also the like a qigong and tai chi practice will really help me in my mind's eye seeing 
develop this awareness because you touch yeah. upon it many many times mm-hmm. you know how you're just very energetically aware is that accurate very from, accurate from what i gather yeah i mean if if you were asking me what could i do i, I feel like i'm an energy savant in the way you just presented it uh, i would say any energy practice is going to be of great value and that's tai chi that's qigong that's yoga among many there are a great example i was i was actually after it was after an ayahuasca ceremony many years ago and this this hypnotherapist and i were like the last two that were still awake and we were just sitting outside you know kind of reveling in the potency of the night and and he was sharing with me a technique that he uses with clients mm. and he often employs in ceremonies when he's really like you know being taken down a uh, an uncomfortable aspect of his journey and mm. he would say that he would employ the awareness of, of putting your attention on your periphery. So what you can see in the furthest story over, or, 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 or vision over to your right and to your left at about you know this 180 degree span, and then put your listening out there as well. And in so doing, what happens is the story that you're stuck in suddenly doesn't have the same amplification and ultimately gets dialed so far down because you're now aware of everything outside of yourself. And so it could be a siren that goes by or the sound of the fire crackling or different pieces that you otherwise, because you're just churning in some, you know, internal Mm. narrative dialogue, whatever. And then when you do that, suddenly like the power, the potency that it has on your awareness, you become very externally aware in such a way that you put your attention outside of yourself. Right. Right. So in in a way, that would be another practice one could employ if you're, let's say, you know, your wife complains of you're, you're, you're not, you know, you aren't hearing me, you aren't present or whatever, or, and to go, oh, I'm probably, and, and, and mind you, when you hear that from your wife or anybody else, the reaction would be defensiveness or maybe openness, but either way, you're actually taking it on as though you're doing something wrong, which is defeating the purpose. Like, just go, oh, yeah, thank you. Like, thank you. The, I, I think the, the best thing that I, I find in communication, by the way, this is totally non this is another tangent, but in communication, when someone says you're doing this or you're not doing that, mm. and I might either A, feel like I'm wrong and therefore I apologize, or B, feel like I'm right and I defend myself, either way, it's not facilitating that peace and harmony we ultimately aspire to. So another thing I found instead of saying I'm sorry is thank you for bringing that to my attention. Mm. Like there's something, maybe maybe just 1% of what you said is valid, but I'm not going to diminish that with the 99% that I think I'm right or right. that whatever. And I found I've had a moment with my landlord actually that it could have escalated into something very, you know, truculent. Sure. And by saying that, I watched the entire disposition shift. Like they felt heard. And they actually felt like that, that what they had to say was valid. And, and, and it was. But the parts of me that could have validated being defensive or being, you know, standing my ground in a situation that's like, well, I don't have any interest in having any entanglement. So thank you for bringing that to my attention. Mm. I'll, I'll be mindful of that moving forward. Thank you. Mm. They wanted to come after it. Mm-hmm. I could feel it. But what ended up happening is it just completely diffused the entire story. Mm. And it's since become a really easy go-to. I don't know why I had to bring that up. But, no, I appreciate but that. It's, it's very challenting. Yeah. yeah. Actually, it's, it's a perfect segue to my next question. Let me make sure. Um, how are we doing on time, by the way? You okay with... I have a three o'clock client, so whatever. I don't know what time it is. It's two o'clock something. Okay, we're good. 
Okay, so maybe in 15 more minutes. Sure. Yeah, cool. Sure. Thank you. Um, well, the whole premise of this podcast is what it means to be a man in modern times. You know, what's your point of view? What it means to... To be a man uh-huh. in modern times. In modern times, got you. Right. What's your point of view around the idea of masculinity? It's a philosophical question. The first thing that comes to mind mm-hmm. is get in touch with your feminine. Okay. I feel like our world is and has been for millennia a um, a more left brain pragmatic mm-hmm. do as opposed to more right brain abstract feel or be and you know for me as part of my story in terms of pivotal moments to kind of circle this all the way back is I was cast as the first gay character on Days of Our Lives many moons ago mm. and that was the gig that I had for three years that 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 crashed along with everything else in my Saturn return and <clears throat> what that did for me was you know as a kid out of Nebraska who was not encouraged to explore his feelings but encouraged mm. to train his body to be an exceptional athlete right. it it gave me license mm. to explore sides of myself I wouldn't have and in so doing feeling that sensation of, of I mean, homosexuality is its own conversation. That sure. isn't like it's, I think that there are homosexual people who are more masculine than feminine and there oh, yeah, yeah. are heteros that are more feminine than masculine. Sure. And so it's not about that. But for me, what it was, was an opportunity to explore a certain femininity in my being mm. um, that has proven to be advantageous on every level where there's a greater acceptance and appreciation for, um, say, a sensitive man. A man that's that's I would I would posit that as sensitivity goes, homosexuality lends itself to being more receptive mm. than heterosexuality in in terms of its sexual expression. Sure. Um, I really don't feel like that was a, the statement I wanted to make. But to move forward, what I'm what I'm getting at is going into my that that more um, that softer side of myself. Mm. And I feel that yoga was as essential to that as anything. And, and I would say that, you know, what it means to be a man is to be deeply respectful of the feminine. And I don't mean that just in females. I mean the feminine current, like the yang, the yin to the yang, right? And um, so I find vulnerability to be a tremendously strong and masculine trait. And I have my own you know, learning curve on that, and we're all human. And at the same time, um, respecting the feminine in all its forms, including our own experience of that aspect of ourselves, to me feels to be so essential on the planet and so missing in a lot of ways that our world is imbalanced. If you look at what we're doing to Earth, you know, mm-hmm. with Gaia as, as a feminine organism and consciousness that births life. Right. Right. And if we look at what we're doing as a species, I feel it's relevant to appreciate that we are in avoidance of recognizing that destructive nature. We're just perpetuating it, which actually kind of leads to the graphic novel. We can circle back to as far as what we what our aim was with that and what what we're talking about, which is unrelated to the feminine. But it is as far as the masculine, like what is it that uh, a modern man can do, I would say, explore his feminine side. Mm. And that doesn't require being a gay character on a soap opera. What it does require is 
feeling yeah. what's there and, right. and really paying attention to and in fact welcoming the sensations that arise. And that's actually a key component of Vipassana as well is you know, you're just attentive to the sensations. Mm. There's no other real meditative technique beyond sitting and breathing is just tracking sensation in the body and really coming into right relation with how much the mind perpetuates the sensation of pain that is otherwise temporary. Like the, the key, one of the key, it's a Pali word, it's anicca, anicca, mm-hmm. impermanence, impermanence, right? And back to that impermanent, that, that relationship to impermanence. And, um, you know, there's a lot of great work out there right now. Uh, like David Data is doing great work and there mm-hmm. are offshoots of his work that I find to be exceptional. Like The Way of the Superior Man was an incredible read for me many years ago. And mm-hmm. The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, another one mm-hmm. that I, right out of college, that one just struck a chord. And mm-hmm. so I think the other side of it is like, to follow Socrates' advice, know thyself. Mm-hmm. And thyself is, it's everything. It's all of it. And know every aspect of yourself. And um, there are so many inroads to that. But I would say that for me, yoga was also a huge, huge component of finding stuck sensations in the body or what mm-hmm. my, my body work teacher, Fred, calls myasms, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, these carried stores of energy that could be past life, could be ancestral, could be from what happened when you were six years old, whatever it is. There are these elements that I find yoga when you're putting yourself in a very deliberate posture and breathing and bringing oxygen to an otherwise very calcified Mm. energy or physical uh, muscular boundedness. It's amazing how much emotion lives in that and how much putting and kind of pivoting towards or putting one's attention towards that sensation Mm. how much it frees up and so um i would say you know do your work would be the other side of it and i just find that my first hit was the feminine and um back to the work i one piece i wanted to really throw in in terms of pivotal aspects in my life is sure also meeting a fourth way teacher fourth way is a mystery school Mm. that was created by gi gurdjieff gurdjieff is a uh uh, Russian-born, I believe, Turkish origin, but just a profound teacher on the planet, mm. transitioned in like the 50s, I believe. And uh, his work, which is like spiritual boot camp, where there's there's really no, there's no soft hand. It's mm. very like looking at it, looking at it, looking at it, not looking away from it, and that's really uncomfortable, so you have to keep looking, and you have a teacher who essentially facilitates that basic environment. And I've had that for uh, over a decade now, and that teacher is also my writing partner, which does dovetail nicely now into the graphic novel. Oh, nice! Oh, hold on one created. second. But fourth way, say spiritual bootcamp. Like, what does that do for you? What spirituality, first and foremost? Let's define that. Then we can go into That's a good what the question. fourth way uh, is. So, well, spiritual bootcamp is a term that I read mm-hmm. subsequent to to choosing to submit myself to the teachings of the fourth way and understanding these esoteric teachings of Pythagoras and what Gurdjieff more or less developed as a school. And um, spirituality is a unique term right now. I don't, it's not mine to define, but but as far as what I say. What's what's your definition? My definition is spirituality. Relatively speaking. I mean, it's an aspect of our human experience that Mm -hmm. I find to be essential Mm -hmm. and I think it means different things to different people what it means to me Mm -hmm. is 
back to that kind of transpersonal element of there's something more, there's something greater. I'm part of a larger whole gotcha. that if I remember that, I'm less inclined to, you know, litter or, you know, or cut somebody off in traffic, but I have an awareness of I'm part of a bigger story and mm. my wants and needs are in no way prioritized over what's mine to do in the moment. Gotcha. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And what makes the fourth way special? from your point of view? Special. Um, let's see. I'm pausing because I'm trying to feel like I would... Why is it... Well, how it was relevant for me right. was... It, it's special to me because I couldn't hide. I had mm. plenty of tactics and techniques to avoid accountability and responsibility for things I didn't even know I was doing. Mm. Or, or motivations I had no clue were driven by an unconscious drive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's bringing, like, back to the young quote about, you know, until we make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. I had a litany of, of false personalities and identification structures and ideas about who I thought I was that created all kinds of mechanisms for falling asleep. In the fourth way, you're either awake or you're asleep. There's no in-between. And one among many tenets of the fourth way is that coherency in your instinctual center or moving center of the body, coherency between that center and the emotional center and the intellectual center, if all three are in any way, if, if one is excessive and the other is therefore deficient, you're asleep. I see. So if someone is highly intellectual but, you know, hasn't moved their body in two years, they may have knowledge and they may be able to express it beautifully and they may be able to create material content with their knowledge in a way that's very effective and beneficial. But are they awake? No. Not in that school. And like I so see. for me the end game is is wakefulness, is mm. being and remaining awake. Self remembering is a key key element of the fourth way you remember yourself and mm. and to do so is a phenomenally difficult task mm. we lose and find our way over again as human beings and um so which of course is part of the dance and part of the maya which is the illusion in the sanskrit term of of this world of oh this realm is here to play out all these aspects of what keeps us asleep mm. and like the buddha under the bodhi tree to attain enlightenment where, you know, all the demonic forces and the Mara demons and all the things that are coming at Gautama Buddha sitting there in, in you know, in, in absolute equanimity, absolute peace in such a way that it's just the illusory nature of the ego or the structure of the ego that draws us off our center, right? Equanimity being so at one with one's center that nothing's pulling you off and that everything is perfectly valid in a more kind of tantric mm. way of speaking so you know in tantra as a as a practice not as a i mean sexuality and tantra are commonly um merged as right. a, as, a, as, a, as like i hear tantra i think sex right that's typically how the western culture sure has it but in, in a, a larger sense the um the practice of Tantra is an all-encompassing every moment as it's arising. How do I remain present with what's arising and not 
fixate on one thing or avoid another, but just be at one with what's arising. Suddenly, mm. then it doesn't matter if my girlfriend doesn't call me or she's calling me eight times a day. Mm. I'm just at one with what's arising and not wishing it to be otherwise. That is what. That's why the fourth way is special to me. Is it gave me a lot of context to a lot of different perspectives that I, I was see. holding that were not at all conscious and were informed by an ego structure that that uh, I wouldn't have ever perceived otherwise. I don't know how I would have gotten to that awareness without that particular consistent work. And another mm. piece to that, <clears throat> which I like to recommend to a lot of clients when they talk about a difficulty with sleep mm. or, or not getting, not feeling as well rested as they would prefer to feel when they, when they wake up is a very simple tactic of what's called dying to your day. That was a Pythagorean exercise where he would, his, his devotees and students would, they were instructed to simply write down the objective events of your day before you go to bed. It's a simple five minute exercise and it is like meditation when I don't do it, it is so apparent to me. But if I write it down, what I'm doing is taking from the subconscious mind the content of my day, everything that happened. You're recapping your day. Recapping it in a very objective manner, meaning I'm not talking about how I felt but, huh. or, or even what they said, but that I talked to my mom. I talked see. to my mom, went to the, you know, biked to the gym. Uh, did a podcast. Yeah, did a podcast massage so-and-so, whatever the events of my day, I'll write that down tonight. Mm. And what I found consistent with what I was taught is that my sleep is more fulfilling and I need less of it. Not in some grand, like, you know, I'm not going on four hours of sleep. I believe eight hours of sleep is essential for the human body, more in terms of the body's capacity to rehabilitate whatever it's processing from mm. the day, whether it's mm environmental toxins, whether it's emotional sensations that might have otherwise been high charged. So I'd say that, but, but dying to your day is a huge, huge thing that, that I can't recommend enough. And it's, Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate no that. Um, you mentioned a lot of good teachers that you stumble across. Mm -hmm. What made your great teachers your great teachers? How does one recognize their, or, you know, that they're in the presence of a great teacher, mm. perfect for that person. Similar to what we said a bit ago about when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Sure. You know, if there's a resonant desire for insight into some aspect of my life and suddenly a book is recommended, maybe unrelated to that or just internal inquiry and suddenly there's a book or there's a thread that feels resonant. I actually feel leaning. One of my teachers, uh, I should say a, a workshop that I attended, a teacher named Scott Blossom who teaches shadow yoga acupuncturist in the Bay Area, offered this incredible nugget that has stuck with me and that was that when we're quiet, consciousness naturally leans towards the Dharma leans towards that which is in alignment is like the next step to mm. the ultimate fulfillment of our purpose in, in this incarnation. And, and when I heard that, <clears throat> and then to answer your question, if you're leaning towards something, go with it. Mm. And if you're not, if you're actually repelled by it, go with that. Like, mm. you know, it, the teachings could sometimes be triggering and you might want to look at what's impelling you to lean away. 
because it could be an avoidance of a much deeper ego death that's ready to happen and you mm. want to happen in terms of a belief system or a structure of identification that is ripe for ultimately being dissolved or destroyed and then born, giving birth therefore like the phoenix rising into a new conscious identification that's formed from the space that's created by disidentifying from some like i'm not worthy is the common or a common belief in among many of us so i would say if it resonates if it's especially if there's there's three times that it comes to you this is a great teaching i also received where um let's say the movie a star is born is i saw the trailer looks kind of intriguing and I'm, I'm thinking about it, you know, I don't maybe I'll see it. And then suddenly my wife comes home and she's like, oh my God, I listened to this podcast with Lady Gaga and we got to see this movie. And you're like, wow. First time it's, it's, it's information. Mm-hmm. The second time it's interesting. And let's say you go to your email and, you know, a buddy's like, dude, I just saw A Star is Born and it's all that. And then that's confirmation. So mm-hmm. the way that we can play with synchronicity, using a term that, that was coined by Carl Jung, is if it shows itself three times, pay attention and follow that thread. Mm. Whether it's, wow, he talked about spirulina and I was just reading about spirulina and plus my, you know, my, my best friends, like all of, he couldn't stop talking about it two, day, two weeks ago. Chances are you've pulled into your field a thread of information relevant to your highest possible good. In this mm. case, spirulina has a supplement to your diet. Mm. You know, and I'm not, I'm an advocate of it for myself. I can't, everybody's body is so unique, so I don't try to tell everybody they should be having something mm. or anything. But that's what I mean is when it's... Pay like, attention to pay serendipity. Attention. Yeah, serendipity. Yeah, the three, when it happens three times, like Burning Man's a great example. There's just so much serendipity that can happen in a unique container like that. In mm. India, I find it be very similar as well. It's like if you let your attention or intuition be guided, it's remarkable how you already know the answer to things you might doubt or second guess if you just oh, wow, that's the third time mm. I'm reading that book or I'm practicing yoga or whatever that third thing or that should say that whatever comes up three times is. Thank you. And what makes your best friends your best friends? On the similar, like your, what's your tribe, right? You know, how, what makes your people your people? Trust. Uh, that I feel a natural space of, of being myself and being seen and received as such. And uh, um, a willingness to ask the hard questions, a willingness to to look within, a willingness to to know themselves, mm. and to be honest with themselves and with me about who they are or where they are, mm. uh, or a freedom that I feel, a trust that I feel to be able to do the same. Mm. Um, Laughter, uh, play, um, an ability to to own their shit, mm. and and as well to hold me to account for mine. Mm. I find that to be extraordinarily valuable. Um, yeah, I mean the people that I feel I can lean on when I need to lean on somebody, mm. and the people that I feel empowered or, or kind of embodied when they lean on me mm. yeah beautiful let's talk about your project you know most recently <laughs> um, how can you 
because you you have this guidance, astrological guidance, right? Mm-hmm. On, on your path, you're doing a lot of things: body work, personal yoga practice, screenplay, and now this graphic novel. Mm-hmm. How do you? The yin energy is all about flow. Mm-hmm. It's all about starting new things because it's it's fun, sexy, right? Right. But how do you balance that with the yang energy? Where you focus on, you know, craft. Let's say. Um, so I guess that's a multi-part question. Right? Mm-hmm. So philosophically speaking, how do you? Because you know, with the guidance that you have, the tools that you have, how do you know? All right, this is just a fleeting idea. I shouldn't pursue it, or like, no, pursue it. One, and two, what got you to develop this graphic novel? Because it's a really cool idea. Let you know, let's talk about it a little bit more. Cool. Um, bringing the philosophical kind of angle on it, in the fourth way, there's a very easy kind of litmus test hmm. for whether or not what's arising is the next step or simply a distraction. Hmm. And Great. that is remember your aim. Remember your aim. Remember your aim. Okay. For me, for example, I entered into this this work with my teacher Mac McCrary who's also my writing partner and and we did so with an awareness that the idea that I had written into a short story and a um, a long-standing knowledge that he had of the fourth way having gone through a school which is called the Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man mm. that is what fourth way schools in the West were called mm. offshoots of Gurdjieff's work and in that process of doing that school for many years, he became an adept with that knowledge and information. And in, in its distillation to me, we used the story that we came together and realized, oh, we're, we're to write this together. This mm-hmm. is what's happening. It was just obvious. And I was in Chinese medicine school at the time. And mm-hmm. um, I ended up going to India with him. And it changed everything. I mean, having... It, pro- going to India, going to India changed. Mm. I didn't go back to school after that, and so I went to school for just a year of Chinese medicine before taking a quarter off to go to India, and then I never went back because that story and he and I's connection while in India as well subsequent was like, oh, this is what we're doing. This mm. is the next step, and so the aim for me was, and I'll get back to like why I remember your aim is like I'll give you the fundamental teaching, but before I do that, I'll just say this. The aim for me was how can I how can I give back? What's my greatest contribution? What can I do? What is what is what is inspiring me to 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 move forward? And I was in Chinese medicine school as a kind of extension of my bodywork practice, where I realized this is a very relevant means of helping bring a human organism to balance. And when he and I dropped in in India to the to the profound level that we did at uh, the ashram of, of a man named Swami Nagananda, a beautiful guru, there was this experience of this, is, this project and what we aimed for it to be from an individual standpoint was it's a vehicle for self-remembering. That's all this is. We're not identified with its outcome because then we're actually, we're not present to what it's here and designed to bring us to as far as self-remembering and all the work and all the negative voices I'm a horrible writer or this is never going to work and all that and just like get present with the voice Mm. that's and then 
want what it does not want. It does not want me to write, so I'm mm. going to sit down and write, mm. even though I'm like, you know, just, just yeah. trudging through the, right, the right. mire of, of 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 not getting anything to really come through. And the um, so the aim that I had was basically being in service would be an easy way to say it. And this felt like a very relevant opportunity to do that. And so for us, the um, for me at least, pivoting out of Chinese medicine school while still using that same philosophy and approach using tuning forks instead of needles, but finding my way to like let that relevant thread continue in my practice, but also getting out of the idea that I'm going to school for two more years and instead going to write this screenplay. And we wrote multiple trilogies and we wrote something very... And we wrote so many versions of the story. It's been a wild ride. But the, the basic takeaway was we would finish an entire script and we would map out the trilogy. We're ready to go, ready to take it to market. And then we go and we went and saw Inception and they did it. They did dream sharing and they did dreams within dreams. And we were just like, what? We have to start over from scratch. Mm. And in, in so doing, all I had to do was remember my aim. Well, what's your aim? It's a story <clears throat> that articulates a hero's journey, mm. very much drawn from the, the works of Joseph Campbell and as well Jungian psychology. And, and in so doing, realizing, well, guess what? You have to start over, but it's consistent with the aim, so it's a yes. And versus, you know, relationships or things that might have pulled my attention and given me pause to go, maybe I do want to just move to India and go live in an ashram and not do this. No, that's not your aim you might be able to justify that it's in service for you to be in meditation and help the collective consciousness by being in that field of awareness. But that's not your aim. Your aim is being in service and applying, giving something. And that was what we both consistently would come back to as right. a, a reason we stayed on task in spite of enormous resistance. And that kind of comes back to the fourth way and remembering your aim. So if you look at the basic structure of form, and this is a Pythagorean teaching that Form is, I should say, formlessness comes into form through sound. And so through, like, first there was the word or sound. And so mm -hmm. we have ohm is the origin of all creation, right? And then we have physical form that is emergent from sound, if one wants to take that, that perspective on it. And the way that Pythagoras taught his students, and then it was an extension, therefore, through the Gurdjieffian school, um, I have the perspective that our pers I believe it's an Egyptian mystery school teaching, though I'm not 100% on that, but it's okay. the basic structure of an octave that we were using music reference a little while ago, and I was using the psychological overlay of that. But we have three energies in the universe that inform everything. Everything is just an extension of or a derivative of these three basic energies. There's okay. affirming energy. Mm. I get out of bed. It's a new day. It's a dono to the day. It's the new getting away from sleep and getting towards wakeful involvement in reality. And it goes do, re, mi, fa, so, la, si. Mm. And so in those seven notes in the octave, mm. the first three are the affirming energy. Affirming. I'm affirming this. I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. Then there's going to be denying energy of equal measure. That is a fundamental law of physics. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Mm. So if we know that, the bigger the affirmation, the stronger the resistance we're going to face. Mm. And so knowing, and that's why you have to remember your aim, because you could meet somebody falling, you know, just like, well, my God, we, we love the same things. We're into ceremony. We're into 
yoga and it's all great and you're beautiful and you think I'm whatever and so here we are like coming together we're gonna link up that's the ray note linking up mm. and then we've got the me note attack and understand and we're just into it and now we're gonna go to India together and we're gonna do this together and then all of a sudden there's gonna be a shock point between the me note and the fa note. So the fa and the so are the denying energy, affirming, denying, or initiation and resistance. These are the basic constants that we're working with. We can start with, like you mentioned, like the newness, it's hot, it's sexy, it's something fresh, because we're getting away from, and there's the newness, there's the allure right. of the newness. Right, right. And so with the resistance, we're gonna hit this no matter what. It can come in so many different forms. It could be like, you just got a job in New York. I have no desire in living to live in New York. And I don't want to do a long-distance relationship. But we're in love and we're right. going to do this. Well, guess what? Resistance has now shown up. Mm. How do you get to the law note and the C note, which is the third energy, the most important key, I think, to, to alchemy, quite, quite frankly, and that is reconciling energy. What's the reconciling energy? Uh, my clients here. All right. So... In that space, the the opportunity, therefore, and this is like a shock point, like, okay, now we have to get to the C note, which is completion verification and support and verification. And so with that, we go, oh, what is the reconciling energy to fulfill on the task or to remember my aim? If the aim for us, for example, was a film trilogy, you asked about the graphic novel, the graphic novel came online when we realized our best play to bring our vision to the world wasn't gonna to be to sell the screenplay to someone else to make, but for us to co-produce with others of like mind and of skill to bring a film to the world. Well, for us to own this so fully, we realized adapting it into a graphic novel, which is kind of the opposite form of, usually it's a graphic novel that becomes a movie. Well, we wrote the movie, then we adapted the graphic novel because we realized we need to bring this vision and give it its best possible legs and we mm. found a brilliant artist Novo Magapo and uh, through that process actually act, we, we actualized the story tenfold greater than what it was before we started the adaptation process and it's really the hero's journey that is basically hitting a truckload of resistance like any good story you're going mm. to basically climb your hero into a tree mm. and he's got to figure out how to get out mm. and so the consistent awareness of the affirming energy is Earth's transformation and evolution into the multiverse. That is what the medicine gate is about. And we have a hero who's got to essentially go through his darkest traumas and traumatic memories that are stored in the crystal matrix of Earth, and in so doing, activate his multidimensional abilities to be able to empathically sense where his niece is, teleport to her rescue, and bring her to the one place in on the planet that she can release Earth into the multiverse based on a story element that she was born in the locus of, during the locus, I should say a locus in space time, that a point of order emerged. And that has to do with genuine geological science that we are in a time of increasing chaos. Bifurcations are happening. Bifurcation is a, um, an uptick in chaotic energy, a separation. And so we're in this place of more and more chaos seems to be happening on the planet. So how do we as human beings become points of order within the chaos? How do we basically identify ourselves with this seven-year-old mm. child as well as this hero who's got to go through all this stuff to get her to the place where then she can go through the transformational process of releasing Earth into the multiverse before the Watiko aliens who 14 billion years ago were exiled from the multiverse, hence the Big Bang. So our universe is actually just like a penal colony or a 
a prison outpost mm. for a rogue alien race that wants nothing but to return to the multiverse to exact their revenge on the Star Council that exiled them 14 billion years ago. And how they figured out how to do it is human consciousness was designed to evolve Earth into the multiverse and that they can co-opt us, which the Watiko have, and there's plenty of teachings on this planet. The Watiko is a term currently in the zeitgeist around this cannibalistic, murderous, consumptive energy that drives the human unconscious. And so mm. we basically told a story where we infuse plot points and elements that represent metaphorically that deeper undercurrent of what's driving this planet and you know into the rocks, so to speak, mm. and how do we wake up before it's too late. Can't wait to read it. Great, I'll give you a copy. From, from the little bit of what I hear, it sounds like a very, you know, you got elements of a very rich uh, universe. That was, our, that was our aim. Lots of characters and a lot of storylines can be developed. I see the framework, I see the possibility. Right on. Yeah. Thanks hey Ryan, that. really appreciate everything that you brought. I really appreciate you sharing, you know, we went to, we venture into difficult questions. Hmm. Uh, some inquiries, philosophical discussions, and some tactical things. I uh, really acknowledge your generosity in, in just being who you are and you brought everything. You know, I hope you know, people, the audience members who are discerning, they can really hear the depth of your, um, your journey, but also your wisdom as well. So yeah, thank you thank so you, much. Thank you, CK. I appreciate you asking the questions and doing the work that you're doing, and I think that it's a noble warrior <laughs> uh, in ha embodiment to, to bring this, this whole inquiry forward so thank you for all the work you've done as well I know it's substantial yeah you're welcome it's been it's been great I really appreciate you